Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. When I work with students with color, I say, I don't care what colors you have on your palette. I just care that you master them. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with acrylic painter, Diana Shine. In the conversation, you'll learn what you need to outrun those negative voices, a system to help you think through color mixing, and how using different combinations of primaries will get you different moods, plus a whole lot more. Shine was so generous with her time, and so the extended cut bonus is basically a whole second episode. You'll learn how to approach the color of light, and the absolute importance of the creative process. Take a listen now by joining the podcast art club at any tier, and you'll find over 30 additional extended cut bonuses to explore. Plus, you'll get access to monthly group challenges, each designed to help you build practical tools into your art practice. If you hear something in the episode and it's an aha moment, share it on Instagram through stories and tag the show at Learn to Paint Podcast. I'd love to hear it. Find links to everything at the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 82. I start the interview by asking Shine how she got started in art. All right, here we go. Well, that's a really good question. I thought of myself as an artist for my entire life, but I was never really any better or more talented than any of the kids around me or at school. I just had that mindset that that's who and what I was, but I got started in my early 20s when I went to the Fry Museum in Seattle and saw the works of Sergei Bongard and Nikolai Feshin. They were Russian Impressionists, and I cried. I literally stood amongst those paintings and wept. They made the feeling of art accessible and emotional, and somehow it moved me deeply. So I just at that moment said, I want to be an artist and I want to paint like that. (laughs) So I really sought out some teachers who had learned from those two artists to get started. And I think I was 25 years old at the time. I had two young children. It was a struggle to start, but I did anyway, (laughs) because that's what I really wanted. How useful was it to know really clearly, like you saw these paintings and you said, yes, that. Do you think that made a difference for you having a really clear idea about where you wanted to head, especially being a mom of two young kids and not having a ton of time? Yes, it was. I had originally wanted to go to art school, but babies came along and it just wasn't feasible. It wasn't possible to do. And then when I asked friends who had been to art school, what was their experience? It was very broad. And it does give people a really broad understanding of art and the art world. What that did to me when I saw what I wanted to paint like, how I wanted to paint, the kinds of paintings that fueled my emotion, focused me. And I was able to point 
that big broad, or it's huge, and was able to point that big broad arrow into a, a narrower area for me so I could get started because time was at an essence. <laughs> you mentioned that your first teacher was watercolor, and we talk about the importance of the experience and the extended cut bonus. But how did you find acrylics? Because we started out really in an exacting way, she wanted me to have proportion and value and edges just so that I found myself very tight with watercolor. And I, it seemed like a box I couldn't escape from. Although you can paint watercolors very loosely and expressively, I found I couldn't. So I thought perhaps oils were the answer. And so I found a teacher who had studied with Sergei Bongard, who taught in oils, begged him to let me join his classes, which he did. But it wasn't very long after that that I found I had severe neurological reactions to the thinners and the products around oil paints, and I just couldn't be around them. I had what looked like seizures, not just like an allergic reaction, but I had real seizures. So I gave away my paints and decided to become a, an acrylic painter. Now, that's a whole different story. You want that story? It's a good one. Yes, please. Okay. Well, I had some good fortune in oil painting, won some awards, sold some paintings. I rented a large studio in Seattle, which was not inexpensive. And I'd set up all my oil paints. And not long after that, I realized I had to give up oil painting and I had a lease on this huge space. And I, the day I gave the oil paints away and the brushes and the mediums and all the stuff that smelled bad, I just said, I, looked, I sat in my empty space and said, now what? And I got a phone call that day from a lady I didn't know. And she said to me, I hear that you're an acrylic painter. And I kind of looked at the clock and said, yes, I am. <laughs> As of right now, I'm an acrylic painter. And she said, well, I'm stopping painting and I would like to give away some of my paints. Would you like them? And I said, yes. And I, she gave me her address. I drove to her place in my big, I had a big Euro van at the time with the seats taken out. And she filled that Euro van up twice with crates of golden acrylic paints, tables and lighting for a studio and everything you would need to set up a studio except the easel. And brushes, eight foot stretcher bars and rolls of canvas and buckets of gesso and gallons of the highest quality acrylic paint you could find. And I, at that point, my daughters were teenagers and they were able to take care of themselves a little bit while I figured this out. And I kind of just during my studio time, I would turn off my phone and say, I don't know how to use these paints. And there isn't anyone around in my world who knows how to teach me them. So I locked the door, turned off my phone and figured it out because I said someone out there wants me to paint acrylic and they want me to paint big. So that was my motivation. <laughs> and I've never looked back. That was over 25 years ago. Was there something about having that abundance of materials that you didn't buy? So there wasn't a price tag attached to them that helped you have freedom in that exploration? Yes, I wish every artist could have that because I learned to be generous with the paint. Use big canvases and big paint and big arm movements and big brushes and lots of paint, you know, and learn to squirt out enough paint to cover the whole surface of the canvas and not just tiny 
droplets of it because it, this is like a gold coin. It really helped. And now, all these years later, I do buy my own paint and it is expensive, but I still have that mentality. Art isn't cheap. Art is worth something. Everybody's, the art we produce is valuable, even to just us. It's a valuable learning tool. And if there has to be a little bit of excess paint squirted out in order to get your ideas from the inside to the outside, I'd rather waste paint than waste ideas. For someone who is starting to learn, you know, they are buying their own paint. Are they holding themselves back by trying to quote unquote save paint? Like how important is it to really like have enough paint that you can use it? it yes, I feel like they're holding themselves back because you're going to have a very thin, miserly, held back product. There isn't going to be that lush richness that you can get when you really attack your canvas. No, I just paint on a smaller canvas if you're really worried about the cost of it, because it is costly. I have a bunch of, you know, paint saving tools that I use. I scrape all my extra paint off into a fishing tackle box, you know, I keep it wet, I buy my paint jars so I can scoop the extra balls of paint back into the jar. I use a stay wet palette to keep my paints from drying out in the process. All of those things to save, you know, those golden daubs of paint. And, you know, I have to worry about that now too. But when I was learning, when I was making the habits of creating my paintings, I didn't have to. And by learning how much paint you need to squeeze out for each size of painting, that really helped. And so I feel like for beginning painters, just get a few tubes, get the big tube, get a red, yellow, blue and a white and, you know, get the big economy brand, squeeze out enough so you get the feel of how lush and how creamy and how beautiful it is in a brush. If you don't have enough, it feels straggly and dry and it's not a tactily beautiful experience. So just do what you need to do to get the habit of how you would squeeze out enough paint to make this painting lush and rich and beautiful. But you would encourage people to buy student grade, like buy the big one so that you can feel that abundance as opposed to feeling precious with the professionals. Right. Well, that's a two-edged sword. I would encourage people to buy the professionals because they have better paint and the colors are more beautiful. But if the cost is definitely prohibitive and you just can't do it, buy the paint you can afford and buy enough of it to make it a beautiful experience every time. Like not just beautiful visually, but beautiful in every way. And the tactile experience is almost as important to me as the visual experience. <laughs> if it doesn't feel good, I'm probably not going to do it as often as I do when it feels good. If it's buttery and creamy and rich and flowing, and it, that's exciting to me and it feels good. If it's scraggly and scratchy and you've got to scrub and work to get it off your brush, that's not as happy an experience or as an a tactily beautiful experience, and I will maybe not do it as often. That's also the reason I buy the brushes I do. I buy brushes that feel good in my hand. I just, it's as simple as that. I like the way the brush feels when I touch it. And so I'm going to touch it more often. What brushes do you use? Well, you know, I, again, I'm balancing economy with what feels good. And I, I found a brush 
called a Princeton, a Princeton company makes it, it's called a snap brush for acrylics. They're really inexpensive, but they're beautiful long handles and they're weighted so that they're perfectly balanced in your hands. They have nice ferrules so that the bristles stay nice and tight on the ends and they scoop up a beautiful amount of paint. They clean up good. They last a long time as long as you care for them. And so I love the economy of them, like a watercolor brush. You could spend $100, $200 on a watercolor brush. A good oil brush, you know, you can spend so much money on $20, $30, $40. But these brushes are like under $10. And they are great. As long as you get the kind that are made for acrylics, they're absolutely great. So that's my my favorite. But everybody can choose for themselves. Go to the art store and really feel weigh them in your hand and feel how they feel in your when you touch them because they're going to be your friends for a long time and we've mentioned acrylic so diana uses heavy body but what do you paint on if it's a big painting i'll paint on stretched canvas because that's the by big i mean larger than 24 inches by 36 because the weight issue i love painting on a smooth masonite surface that's been treated with gesso because i don't like fighting the texture of the canvas. I like the texture of my brushstrokes to be the texture you see. And so even with the stretched canvas, I like to put enough gesso on it that it disrupts that really regular canvas texture enough that my brushstrokes are what show up. And with acrylics, if there's any water in the paint, they dry a little flatter and the canvas texture really shows up. When I use a smooth surface, It's all about what's going down on the surface. Could you walk us through your process for acrylic paintings? It started because I have a really strong critic inside of me. This critic says, oh, you're no good. This isn't good. This isn't going to be any good. Why do you think this is going to be good? I'm in my 60s. I've never been able to get rid of this little person in my head. So I'm just going to say, "Okay, critic, we're going to work together. So the first thing I do is I plan a painting. And in order to plan, I ask myself, what does this image make me feel? Am I joyful? Am I moody? Am I feeling vulnerable? Does it make me feel quirky? I just either jot it down or make a mental note. How does it make me feel? How do I want to transmit that feeling through paint? And so I make a plan and the plan includes a compositional plan. Am I leading the viewer into the center of my painting? Am I keeping the viewer engaged in my painting? Using compositional tools, I do a value plan, which helps that composition. And then I create the color harmony, just a basic color harmony based on if it's a moody painting, probably the colors will be grayer and softer and the lines will be more horizontal or more angled. If it's a quirky, you know, if I'm feeling silly or if it's making me feel joyful, there might be diagonal forms or rounded forms or forms that overlap each other in a crazy way. So I'm thinking about that as I'm planning the painting. What visual tools do I have to get that feeling across? Because lines and colors and designs create feelings. Then once I'm really happy with that design, I'm going to mix up the five big colors that are going to dominate my canvas. I pre-mix those because in acrylics, we have to work fast. So that saying, (laughs) knowing that I have that critic in my head, The next part, the laying in of the painting, I work really fast, faster than my brain can make up words. 
in doing that, I'm allowing my creativity, my spontaneity, I'm overriding even sometimes what my plan was just based on the spontaneity of the moment. I'm just reacting to the thoughts I had in the beginning and putting the paint down as fast as I can humanly go. Then when the entire canvas is covered, I stop and I step back and I allow the critic to do her work. Okay, go for it. And then I let that inform me as to how I'm going to finish the painting. How did I want this painting to be thick, textural, with big passages of dark and light, or, you know, whatever it was that I had thought about. So I'm not allowing the critic to have full sway, but I am working to find a way to say the thing I wanted to say about this image from the beginning. And it's so easy to get caught up in minutia and detail and get lost in the process. And then all of a sudden you've overworked and you've totally lost your first idea and you feel a little bankrupt. You, well, oh, I just overshot that. So this next process, the slowing down and the I'm only giving that self-critiquing person the room of how am I going to make this painting fit my idea? And as soon as the painting reaches that idea, I make myself stop and put it away. I get it out like a few days later and look at it and see if there's any glaring like technical mistakes, which I will fix. But if there's no glaring technical mistakes, <laughs> I don't know what else I can do to the painting possibly to make it better. I, there's always something else you can do to a painting. It's never a done thing. But is there anything else I can do to make it a better experience for the viewer? Is there anything else I can do to make it more expressive of how I feel about this image? If there isn't anything like that on my tool set, then the painting's done. But that going slow and thoughtfully in the beginning plan and then having at it with every tool in my in my toolbox. <laughs> I scratch it, I poke it, I slap it, I scrape it, I pile the plate paint on, I'll use whatever tool I think of. Because that's to me where the real, that spontaneous creative thing inside can really come out and play. How hard was it to learn what it felt like internally when you had hit the emotion or close enough to the emotion that it was time to walk away? Really hard. I felt like after learning the basics, you know, <laughs> that's one of the hardest things because you have all this you know, I then had all this training over the years and the difference between making a copy of a photograph or even a copy of a landscape you're looking at and creating like an image that people can recognize and relate to, which is what I really wanted to do. But within that create a poetic moment where people could feel what I'm feeling, that was very difficult. And the few times I hit it on the head, it was almost by accident. And then I had to like, take apart my experience and say, how did I get there? What was I doing when I accidentally found that precious moment? And it took me years to figure out it wasn't what I was doing. It was what I was thinking. It was where my headspace was, not what music I was listening to or what image I was looking at or what paintbrush I was using. It was my absolute dedication to being in the painting in the present moment and accessing the feeling because it brings up feelings that other feelings that you might not be used to or might be too intense or 
too emotional or too something. And you're like, no, I, don't, I didn't want a therapy session today. I just wanted to paint. But being dedicated to the moment, I think that was the answer. When I discovered that moment in time where I was not like chatting away with somebody in the room or listening to something unrelated on the radio or thinking about, you know, what I was going to make for dinner, you know, none of those things, learning how to set that aside and just being, I call it art think, what is the next brushstroke I need to make? Is it going to be thicker or thinner, brighter or duller, redder or bluer? How much paint am I going to load up on my brush? Staying inside of that art think. I don't always have to think about every stroke, but just keeping my mind in the painting and not floating off away somewhere. That was a hard thing to learn. And it's a hard thing to stay with even now. It's easy to get distracted. You know, I don't know if people meditate, but if you do, it's like, you know, you drift every five seconds, you drift away, <laughs> bring yourself back. <laughs> sort of the way it is with painting. You're just got to be in the moment. And when you drift away, you just bring yourself back because you find yourself just going, making repeated marks that have no meaning. And so if you want every mark to have meaning, you have to put meaning into those marks by being in the moment. Even if I am painting so fast, I'm not thinking, thinking, I'm still painting. I'm still, my head is in the game. A hundred percent head is in the game. How important is the plan in being able to stay present moment for the emotion later? Really important to me, even if I don't jot it down, creating the mental framework, but I will often do little sketches and little color studies but it's really important because it helps me. It's sort of like having seen the Sergei Bongart paintings and then help me focus in on where I wanted to go with my art. I have this little plan and I'm about to execute it. And it's like having a recipe. Even if you're going to change the recipe in the middle of the dish you're cooking, you've got the idea. It's not you're just not just randomly throwing ingredients in and seeing if something happens. <laughs> you know, it's this isn't the process for every painter. It's the process for me. I need it. It helps me understand and go in with great confidence. I liked my plan. My plan was solid and strong. I know if I execute this plan, I'll probably come out with a good result. And I also know if something isn't working in the plan along the way, that I'll be able to see it immediately and fix it in process. So it's enormously important. So you have the plan either in your head or in a physical form. What is important to bring on to your surface? Is it values? Is it the shapes? Is it the local color? Like those first layers, what's important for you to get on the page so that you have a framework to build on? I tend to do a wash on my painting, like covered over with a, a, a wash with some water in it. And like the oil painters do, I wipe away where the light areas are going to be. So there's now a mid value area of paint and a light area. And then I go back in and darken. So I have a value plan and a composition plan and my drawing all at the same time. And then that is where I really visualize that my plan is going to work or not work is within that first wash when I lay it down wipe away, you know, I can see how my eye is going to flow through the painting and how the composition is going to work before I put the first brushstroke down. That's to me, that value and composition is much more important than the color. 
and I consider myself a colorist. <laughs> I love color, <laughs> but maybe it goes back to my first training that value and composition is like the anchors, the whole framework, or a better word than anchor would be it's the skeleton of the painting. Without that skeleton of composition and values, the whole thing can just like collapse down into a puddle of mush and you can never like, why aren't you, why aren't you standing up? Why aren't you looking great? It needed that skeletal framework underneath. Does that mean that you need to be able to look at that skeletal framework and say, I like that before moving on? Yes. And if I don't like it, I fix it right away. If I need to move a light shape over, or if the house is needs to be three inches to the left, I do it then and there before I spent an hour painting that house on and then go, oh, it needs to be three inches to the left. I fix it when I only have like 30 seconds committed to this process <laughs> so I can really see it. It's visual to me. I'm always amazed at the discipline it takes. Like there's so much momentum in painting. I'll even notice I don't like that, but something in my brain says, oh, we'll fix it later. Keep moving. The discipline it takes to be like, no, we fix it now. It does take discipline. It takes a lot of knowing. And I think it took a lot of having to fix it after the fact when, you know, like I'm, I was doing portraits. I did portraits for years and the eye is wrong and I just keep going. And then I have to take that whole, I put like three hours into that one eye and I have to take it off because it's in the wrong spot. Wouldn't it have been better to have gotten it in the right spot? to start with before I start painting. <laughs> That's the way I feel now. I've made so many of those mistakes and they were so painful. And I think once you've made a lot of really painful mistakes, you're like, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I don't want to get this totally painted in and have it be gorgeous and beautiful and need to be removed in order for the painting to work. Well, then once you have the values in and you like it and you have your lights, darks and mids, that plan visually do you build up the whole painting at once or do you work like in focal area out? Like how does the paint build? Like what does that look like? It does change from painting to painting. Some paintings just call for starting with the darks. You know, you just want to have that structure in right away. Some paintings call for working from mid value out. And the beauty of acrylics is you can do it whichever way you want. In oils, you can't. You can't start with the lights. You have to start with the darks. In acrylics, you can start on whatever makes the most logical sense. But the way I started is with the big color shapes, the big color value shapes, blocking in the big blocks of color. But that said, I don't just leave them there. While I'm putting that block of color in, I put it in pretty thick so I can work wet into wet. For instance, if it's a sky, I'll put it in fairly thick so I can blend. I can put in soft focus clouds and mush them into the wet paint while it's wet. Once it dries, there's other techniques to lose those edges and make things soft, but they're a little more difficult. And the thick paint helps keep it wetter longer. But I do work from big shape to small shape. And then I save the details for the end when I know they're going to be in exactly the right spot They'll be in the right value sequence. You know, don't put all the little fun things, the little accent marks and sparkles and, you know, those beautiful little dots. I save them for the end. And that also helps energize that last little bit of the painting. I hardly ever demonstrate doing that because it's so slow. It's such a slow process that I'll just look at the painting for three minutes and then make one brush mark. 
and then look at the painting for another two minutes and make one brush mark. That would become so tedious to a person watching. But to me, it's like, this is where it gets the juice. I can't just slap away at this and expect some magic formula to happen. I'm intentionally putting these last marks down right where I want them, right where I think they need to be. All this spontaneous fun, other free things happened in the middle of the painting when I was laying it in. And now I'm going to slow down and really be intentional about how I finish. Even if I don't finish much, even if it's just five brush strokes, it takes a long time. What are the problems you're solving with those final brush marks? Every painting is different. And sometimes I'll see that my composition plan didn't quite get the viewer into the painting and staying connected into the painting. And so those final brush marks will be ways to alter like a little branch, just turning slightly different direction and gets your eye moving slightly around a, a corner or a tiny little beam of light directing across a road that'll help move the viewer's eye across the street. Or it'll be, you know, there's something not very vibrant here. And those last few brushstrokes will be maybe a few shots of bright turquoise and then bright red in odd places, in places where you wouldn't expect them to be. It'll just like light up the whole surface of the painting and bring something joyful and unexpected there. And you're like, oh, I never expected turquoise to be in that shadow, but it works. You know, So there's every painting has a different solution because when you go at it, you know, sort of, in front of your thinking, there's going to be some mistakes made. And so that changes with every single painting. It's often just finding a way to keep that viewer engaged so I can tell them my story. If I send them away too soon, I'll never communicate what I wanted to say. We're going to transition into color. What colors are on your palette? On my personal palette, I keep three reds, three yellows, and three blues a warm, a cool, and a neutral of each of the primary colors and titanium white. So that if my painting is mostly a neutral, very muted, low intensity painting, I will start with low intensity colors. And I find that there are certain times of the year, certain seasons where I can, you know, springtime to me is bright. It's cool. I mean, the colors are bright. The colors are cool. And so I will choose my cool brights from, you know, I'll choose a red, yellow, blue that are cool and bright. And that helps just push that idea of springtime. And to me, you know, like if I'm painting a November scene, that would be maybe warmer and low intensity after the leaves have fallen and everything is those ochres and gold colors of November. Then I would use warm colors and more muted colors. So there's those. And then I will often have a few little extra pigments in my box to give it those little sparks at the end, like cadmium orange or phthalo turquoise or something like that. Just a little something to give it a, a bright like pop at the end. But I find those nine colors plus white, I can recreate almost any color I see without needing to go buy 35 tubes of paint at the, at the art store. It also helps me economize. So that's what I do for my personal painting. For my beginning students, I just have a red, yellow, blue, and a white, and we call it good. Learn to mix. Learn how all the color sequences are created before you start buying shortcuts. 
So you have those 10 colors in your paint box, but how many colors would you generally lay out for a painting? Between four to six, usually. Not a lot. I feel like the more simplicity I have on my palette and that I mix from those simple colors, the more color harmony I get, the better they work together. And I went down that particular rabbit hole a long time ago. (laughs) And I just went to a workshop where the teacher had me put out all the colors. And I said, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try working with all the colors. And it was fun. It worked. But I think I will go back to my four to six pigments on my paint. And then if I need more, I'll put out more. But if I have them out from the beginning, mud happens. And so harmony happens with fewer colors. That's for sure. Could you just name off the neutral versions of the yellow, red, and blue that you use? Yes. And the blue is interesting. It's a color that I've had trouble finding lately, but it's called indenthrone blue or anthraquinine blue. Those two names mean the same blue. And it's a beautiful dark color. It's almost black coming out of the tube. And when it's mixed with white, it makes a blue-gray. It's a beautiful blue-gray. The neutral red I use is quinacridone burnt orange, which is more red than like a burnt sienna. It's just a beautiful neutral red. And then I use yellow oxide as my neutral yellow. When I put those three colors together, I have like, I can paint a, a beautiful gray afternoon, rainy day (laughs) with those lovely muted colors. And they come up with some really, really subtle, beautiful combinations. So then when you're first looking at your reference, it sounds like you're making a color choice before you lay out your pigment. So what is that color choice? My color choice depends on the emotion and the mood that I'm trying to convey. If I'm looking at something that is kind of dull, the reference is dull, I don't feel like I have to copy it. I am thinking about when I take all my own photos for my own work and I know what I felt when I took that photo. It made me feel so joyful, gleeful, happy. And maybe those muted colors aren't what I need. Maybe I want to put up colors that just tend to a little more brightness so that I can express it with a brighter palette. Or if I'm looking at something that's really bright, but it made me go internal and feel a little moody, I might switch to those more muted colors, bring the whole thing down into a moodier place. So those are my decision-making processes. Otherwise, over the 20 years that I've been using variations of this palette, I sort of have an idea of what they're going to look like, you know, and it's hardly even a conscious decision anymore. Because I've limited myself to these few, I've internalized what they do. And when I work with students with color, I say, I don't care what colors you have on your palette. I just care that you master them. If you decide to put a color on your palette, I want you to use it so much that you are the master of that color and you know what it's going to do. There's no surprises. So the neutrals, you know, that will be sort of a grayer painting. How do you decide if you're going to use the warm or the cool set or do you use them interchangeably? Sometimes I will use like a warm red with a cool blue or a warm yellow and a cool red, just depending on if I've got really brilliant sunlit greens that are backlit with sunlight pouring through them like green leaves, I will use my cool yellow 
and my phthalo blue-green shade, which will make the most intense, impactful yellow-green possible because a warm yellow will have a little red in it and that will neutralize any green that you make. It'll make it a softer green. And so it isn't just about warm, cool then, it's about the intensity of what's possible with those colors. Or if I want a really vibrant purple, I probably will choose a cool red and my ultramarine blue. There's a big debate over whether ultramarine and phthalo are warm or cool, and I don't want to go into that debate. I have my theories, and it's opposite of most other people have, So, but ultramarine tends purple, so then you mix that with a cool red, you're going to get a vibrant purple. If you mix it with a cadmium red light, which tends orangey, orange is going to turn that purple brownish. I have so many people tell me, I can't get a good purple with three colors. Well, you're using wrong three colors <laughs> because you totally can. It took me so long to realize that the cadmium red I was using is never going to make a bright purple with cobalt blue. Just never going to happen. It's mostly orange. It has so much yellow in it that it just neutralizes any purple. You get brown. Then it's just brown. So when someone is working, like, you know, you've told them, use whatever colors you want, but master them. They have a color that they see that they're trying to mix. Do you have a way that you suggest people walk through trying to mix a specific color? Absolutely. And it's a very simple process, but it takes a lot of practice. So, you know, there are the four main aspects of color. And I use these four main aspects of color to mix color. And the first one is hue. So basically, you have six hues on your palette. Red, yellow, blue, orange, green, violet. So you pick out the hue that your color you're trying to mix is most closely related to. If it's a gray, is it a blue gray or a purple gray or a what's it mostly related to? Put that color down first before you do anything else. Just get that main hue. The second main attribute of color is its value. So before you do anything else, like trying to gray the color or change that color, you change the value. If it's too dark, you're going to add white to it or make sure white and yellow, perhaps, but you're going to lighten it somehow, usually with white. Once you get at the right value, you can really see what that color has morphed into because it changes. Then there's the temperature of the color. So if you decided you, your gray was a blue gray and you got your blue down to the right value and it's too cold. You can choose red, yellow, or orange, one of those hues. You can add to that color to change it. If it's too bright, well, intensity is the fourth one. So you can drop its intensity. You can always drop the intensity of a color with its opposite on the color wheel. And so you just go through those four things, the hue first, always, the value, always second, and either the temperature or the intensity of the color as the Third and final way, you alter that. And then you can tweak it little bits, but it's almost always, almost there with just three shots then. Hue, value, and then temperature. I mean, often the color is there after you fix the value. You know, it's quite frequently just, oh, there it is. Are there any indications that someone should abandon the puddle they've been mixing and start again? Oh, yeah. When the puddle of paint is just... I mean, I feel like there's times when that puddle is incurable. It should be scraped away and that spot on the palette wiped clean so you can start again fresh. 
if it's just getting worse and worse and worse and there's no going back, all you're going to do is make whatever beautiful color you add to it is going to be made terrible. It's like the I was doing it with my grandson. Betty bought the bitter butter and the better butter made the whatever that was. The bitter butter made it bitter. <laughs> it's going to be terrible. So scrape that away. Start again with a hue. The brightest color possible. You know, if you're making a beige, you're going to look at your six hues and say, what's it closest to? Maybe orange, you know, and then you'll put that orange down and then, oh, it needs to be darker. So you're going to darken it with blue or black. I don't even have black on my palette. So I'm going to darken it with some blue. And then once I get it darkened, then I can see what I need to do with it. Is it too brown? Is it too black? You know, what do I have to do to this color? Well, usually it's a value thing. Almost always it's a value thing. And honestly, if you get the values right, usually it, it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> the values are the most important part of the painting. And the color is like the emotion of the painting. The color creates the emotional content. And so mixing the right color is important, but I've seen artists take the same scene and have it every color possible. It's nothing even alike in the colors they do, and they still create an emotional impact. If their values are right, the scene still looks correct. And so for me, mixing colors is more about creating the emotional impact that I want to create. If someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Paint a lot. Paint as often as you can. Get a person you trust who is on the same path as you, who you respect and admire their work as an artist, and you respect them as a creative person. Get them to help you critique your work. I see a lot of critique groups that are not helpful at all. Because the people are not trustworthy with your precious things. You know, people will create a critique group and then people will think it's their, they either have to praise everybody over the top or they have to be very, very, very critical and sort of they aren't qualified to be. They just want to smooth everybody's painting out and turn them into the same. And so it's important to find a mentor or a person even like once every three or four months that you could get together with and say, I trust you to critique my work. I might cry. Don't worry about that. But I need feedback. Where do you see this? And it gets harder and harder to find that person. And when you do to form an alliance with them to just see that they're on the same road at you, they're on the same page as you are, but you have the respect, but you don't have to listen to everything they say. <laughs> It's just feedback. It isn't like a mandate. It's just getting another person to say, ah, I look at how you translated this color into this set of colors. That was amazing. How it just, you took this really dull, boring color and you translated it like this. To me, that kind of feedback is critical for everyone in the arts. You know, it's like having someone taste your food. Honey, it's too salty. You can learn more about Diana Shine, including her workshops at her website, www.dianashine.com and on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Diana. Oh, thanks so much, Kelly, for having me. It's been great. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Did you enjoy the episode? Take a screenshot and share it on Instagram stories. Tag me at Learn to Paint Podcast so I can say hello and thank you. 
Podcast Art Club members, your extended cut bonus with Shine is live on Patreon. Shine was so generous with her time, and so the extended cut bonus is basically a whole second episode. You'll learn how to approach the color of light and the absolute importance of a creative process. Take a listen now by joining the Podcast Art Club at any tier, and you'll find over 30 additional extended cuts to explore. Plus, you'll get access to monthly group challenges, each designed to help you build practical tools into your art practice. Head to patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast and sign up at any tier. Thank you to everyone over in the podcast art club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to high gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting. <laughs>